0: That is the sound you do want to hear. It's the sound of anti-nuclear activists gathered in a protest demonstration against the restart of the nuclear reactors in Japan, calling out no restart. When you hear that sound, it means some phone nukers somewhere are in the nuclear hot seat. Welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat, the weekly podcast keeping you up to date on all things anti-nuclear. My name is Libby Halevi. I'm the producer and host of this podcast, and I do it because I was one mile from the nuclear reactor at Three Mile Island when that accident happened in 1979. I don't want any of you ever going through what I went through with that experience, and that's why I'm here, and that's why I do it. Activists looking for exciting new strategies, I'm letting you know right now, today's interview is going to blow your mind. It contains powerful information and some terrific actions you can take, and it's all shared by our guest, environmental attorney and Indian Point activist, Susan Hito Shapiro. You won't want to miss it, and it will be coming up in just a few moments. Today is Tuesday, June 26, 2012. One year and 107 days since the Fukushima tragedy began on March 11 of 2011. And here is the week's nuclear news. As you heard in the beginning, there were protests against the restart of the Ui nuclear reactors in Japan. And in Japan, 45,000 people protested in front of Prime Minister Noda's official residence in Tokyo on Friday, June 22nd. TV Asahi's program, Hodo Station, which is a news and commentary show, took up the protest in front of the prime minister's official residence. This marks one of the first times that the anti-nuclear movement has had any mention anywhere in Japanese media. Even more amazingly was the reporter went inside the prime minister's official residence during the protest and picked up the sound of the protest. Inside the residence, it was deafening. In solidarity, anti-nuclear protesters in Los Angeles and San Francisco, among other cities, held their own demonstrations in front of the Japanese consulates in those cities. In Los Angeles, the protest included a die-in on the steps in front of the building, and there are pictures available for that on the Nuclear Hot Seat website. Now, to give you perspective about what's going on with the UI reactors, Three days before the demonstration with the 45,000 people in Japan, an alarm went off at the number three reactor at the Ui Nuclear Power Plant in Fukui Prefecture. Now, according to KEPCO, the Kansai Electric Power Company, this indicated a minor problem. They were backed up in this statement by the government. It was the first sign of trouble since the government decided on Saturday to restart the plant's number three and number four units. Ketco said on Wednesday that the alarm suggested the water level had fallen in a tank used to cool an electric power generator at its number three reactor. It also says workers who examined the tank found no leaks, but that the water level was about five centimeters lower than usual. The disclosure of Tuesday's accident did not come until about 13 hours after the alarm went off. So much for transparency. A nuclear and industrial safety agency official apologized at a news conference, saying it was his lapse in judgment that caused the delayed disclosure. Also at Ui, only five days after that, alarms sounded 26 times at power transmission line monitoring systems. The alarm sounded at two monitoring locations for the power transmission lines between Kepco's Ui nuclear power plant and the power transmission facilities in Kyoto City. The alarms took place between midnight on June 23rd and the morning of June 24th, all of it within 14 hours. According to KEPCO. alarms also went off an additional 32 times at five power transmission facilities located in southern Fukai and northern Kyoto prefectures between KEPCO's Takahama nuclear power plant and the power transmission facilities. They blamed the alarms on the unstable atmosphere. What, no swamp gas? 58 alarms in 14 hours, and TEPCO saying it's a phenomenon that happens often due to the weather conditions, and said there would be no effect on the work to prepare for the restarting of the plant. Moving on to Fukushima, the biggest bulge in reactor number four building is now 40% larger than previously stated in TEPCO data. The biggest bulge reported by TEPCO in May of 2012 was 33 millimeters, and now the largest bulge is being reported at 46 millimeters. The heavily damaged unit 4 reactor building at Fukushima has a slight tilt, but according to the always reliable source, TEPCO, you can put all that in quotes with heavy sarcasm, the tilt does not pose a risk to the integrity of the building. TEPCO said in a report on Monday to Japanese nuclear regulators that at least two of the walls of the number four reactor building are bulging outward and that the building is tilting. Now, as a reminder, the number four reactor building houses on its upper floors a cooling pool filled with more than 1,000 spent nuclear fuel rods. Some experts say that the building, which was ravaged in a hydrogen explosion in the early days of the disaster in March of 2011, is not strong enough to support the fuel pool, especially if another earthquake hits the region, to which Nuclear Hot Seat adds it could be a typhoon, or it could also be a tornado, or just the wear and tear on the building itself and gravity taking hold. Damage to the pool or loss of cooling could lead to the spent fuel overheating, releasing large amounts of radiation into the environment, the experts warn. Tefco has announced that it will start work to remove the spent fuel rods later this year, earlier than initially planned. However, other experts warn against removing fuel rods too hastily, which might pose its own risk. Damned if you do, damned if you don't, just basically damned. If that's not a fishy enough story for you, here's another fishy story. It's the question of whether the public that is jittery about radiation will trust fish, caught off fukushima many japanese are understandably wary of the government's assurances about test results and tokyo electric has made people even more suspicious by refusing to let independent experts survey waters inside the roughly 12 mile exclusion zone around the fukushima nuclear power plant contaminated water still escapes from the plant about 12 tons of water containing radioactive strontium leaked in april this according to tepco In addition, rain falls on the area and washes radioactive cesium into local rivers that empty into the sea. Now, according to an associate professor of environmental engineering at Kyoto University, the bottom line is that it's too early to tell how much the sea or sea life has been contaminated. And the event is not yet over. Radioactive substances could enter the ocean for some time, perhaps even years. On another piece of environmental information japanese birders have been going into the fukushima area to find out how the radiation may have affected swallows these are members of the japan wild bird association they report back through tweets that rice fields were abandoned all the villagers evacuated and that they found only a few swallows in addition according to this tweet we couldn't find other summer birds such as narcissus flycatcher or blue and white flycatcher either It reminded me of Silent Spring by Rachel Louise Carson, Forest of No Chirp. Here in the States, we do have a piece of good news. This from the Los Angeles Times this past Sunday, June 24th. This is a quote from their editorial page. The decision about whether to start up the reactors is essentially an engineering issue, but the bigger policy question for both Edison and regulators is the long-term future of the aging plant. San Onofre's two current reactors have been operating since 1983 and 1984, respectively. The licenses for both expire in 2022. Edison says it has not yet determined whether to seek a 20-year license extension, a process that would have to begin in 2017 to be completed in time. It should not. There it was in black and white on the pages of the Los Angeles Times. It should not. Instead of spending the next five years figuring out how to keep the plant going indefinitely, Edison should be using that time to develop other ways to generate the needed power, especially from reliable, sustainable sources such as solar and wind. Nuclear energy is not worth the long-term risk. As we have said before, California, with its network of earthquake faults and the environmental health of the ocean to consider, is the wrong place for such plants. Now is the perfect time for Edison and the state as a whole to begin the planning for a non-nuclear future. Among the people helping us get to a non-nuclear future is the person I'm about to speak with next. Our guest today on Nuclear Hot Seat is Susan Hito Shapiro. She is a New York State environmental and real estate attorney, a filmmaker, and a farmer. She's one of the founding core members of the Indian Point Safe Energy Coalition, a board member of the Radiation and Public Health Project and Public Health and Sustainable Energy. She participated in the recent Blue Ribbon Commission on Nuclear Waste Storage Issues. Susan has been working to close Indian Point since 9-11, when the terrorists flew directly over Indian Point before hitting the World Trade Center. She has been one of the leading strategists in the Indian Point battle, and she's here to share some of her insights today. Susan, welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat.
1: Thank you.
0: So how did you first get involved with the Indian Point battle?
1: Well, as I said, I had um, gotten involved right after 9-11. I had recently moved back from Los Angeles because of my father being ill, and he asked me to come back and help him with his business. And um, my, I had a three-year-old who was in preschool, as it turns out, about four miles from Indian Point. And when 9-11 happened, we all rushed to get our kids, and we were very aware that the terrorists uh, were had flown directly over the plant. And uh, during the ensuing weeks, there were fighter fireplaces planes going up and down the Hudson River, and it was very nerve-wracking, and I became very aware of the reality that Indian Point was the most uh, attractive target for terrorism in the country, and that's how I first got involved, but as I became more involved, and my friend used to call us. The scared shitless housewives. That was our little uh, – no, though none of us were housewives, but that's how we felt, because we were really – it was really about our children and understanding that we had no protection and we had no possibility of evacuation. There's 18 million people, you know, around Indian Point, and there's literally no way out, mm-hmm. and there's nowhere to go. Um and just the geography of the area really is part of the problem. We
0: face much the same thing here in California with San Onofre. Anybody who thinks that the 405 is going to be able to channel people out of the southern part of California uh, obviously hasn't been there anywhere within three hours of uh, people getting out of work because it's impassable.
1: That's so- exactly the case here. We have one pass. It's called the Rampo Pass. The whole everyone has to go through it. It's a it's a you know it's a six lane highway with three lanes in each direction and that's it. And there's no other way out.
0: So how did you evolve into the current activist position that you have within this issue?
1: Well, what happened was so I got involved with our little local group that ended up uh, forming itself into the Indian Point Safe Energy Coalition right after 9-11. There were 70 different small groups that joined together and some large groups at that time. And um, everyone was trying to figure out what to do. And we were all trying to figure out, uh, you know, how can we possibly – both get the plans shut down and also make it safer and what happened is the more I got involved with it being a lawyer I start, and also really coming from an outside of the law perspective being a filmmaker I sort of looked at things a little differently than a lot of people who had been involved in environmental things for a long time in this area and I and I started looking at um, what rights does the state have which as anyone involved in the nuclear issue understands states have very little rights however in New York And I think in many plants, the the one thing the state does have control over is the water discharge permit or the water intake permit. And many plants actually might not have this problem because they are actually using state-of-the-industry cooling systems. But Indian Point was built a long, long time ago. It's one of the oldest plants in the nation. And they never put in closed-cycle cooling. So they use a billion gallons of Hudson River water a year. They suck it through the plant, and they put it back superheated, you know, 15 to 25 degrees hotter. And that, they use the water all the way from New York City to Albany. That length of the entire Hudson gets sucked into that plant and spit out again every year. And so the thermal pollution is actually under the Clean Water Act. So myself and another attorney, Richard Brodsky, who was an assemblyman at that time, decided that this was something that needed to be litigated because the Department of Environmental Protection, the DEC, the uh, Conservation, I mean, in New York State hadn't acted on it for 20 years and there were negotiations going on for 20 years, but nothing was happening. So we started an action, and miraculously we actually won in the lower court and it got appealed, and we kept winning. It actually got transferred over to Riverkeeper, who took it all the way to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court held that though Entergy, who's the operator of Indian Point, wanted it to be that cost was, would be the, the major factor, the only factor that can be looked at, the Supreme Court actually ruled that cost, May be looked at, but that the underlying effectiveness of a system has to show to be work in order for it to prevent, um, the, you know, violation of the Clean Water Act. So this so,
0: sounds like it's a wedge issue that might be used yeah. in other locations to fight yeah. back from the state level
1: yes and it's different than a legislative action like Vermont which i think you know Vermont's doing a great job but they they did it differently they actually had a, legis- a state legislature mandate that they had the right to approve uh relicensing whereas the clean water act is a federal law and this it will be a very interesting battle we're we're waiting to see what happens cuz where it stands now just to fast forward this started in you know 2001 so let's fast forward to you know 10 years Twelve years later, basically, um, the DEC has come down with a very strong denial of Indian points using the water of the Hudson River. They denied them a discharge permit for three reasons um, Entergy of course is appealing it um, to the commissioner and we're wa- and their hearings going on, and we're waiting to see what will be the result of those hearings. But if New York State states stays strong to the Clean Water Act and follows their initial order, which was extremely well done then um indian point will not be allowed to be uh using the hudson river water anymore and they will not be able, allowed to operate past their license dates which is uh 2013 and 2015 so it's so at this
0: point where where are you in this process and when you say that the state of new york has to stand firm on this what exactly does that mean
1: that means that we as uh, activists and as community people are putting a lot of Pressure and petitions to the governor and to the DEC saying we stand behind you we support you This is the right thing to do the river is a public trust to all the people of New York State And there the problem at Indian Point is not only the thermal pollution as they identified, but they're also um, Killing they're impinging um, The Hudson River sturgeon which is now identified as an endangered species It's been listed as an endangered species and the most Uh, The biggest problem, actually, is Indian Point is leaking strontium, tritium, and cesium into the Hudson River, and it's been acknowledged by Entergy that it is. And the NRC basically gave them a pass and said, oh, you don't have to clean it up. You just have to let it keep leaching into the Hudson River.
0: So, in other words, they're using the the, the same old, oh, it's acceptable levels, or it's underneath a particular arbitrarily chosen level that they will play with as much as they need to to make it still be acceptable. Uh, But meanwhile, there's radiation being leaked locally.
1: Right, and now there's a new twist in that three-and-a-half miles downriver from the plant, there's a proposal by United Water Suez to put in a desalination plant for all the people in rockland county to drink hudson river tritiated and strontium laced water thats space and they're claiming that they can clean it but they know they can't clean the tritium out of it the the strontium is a experimental process to get it out of water it's not really um an effective it's extremely expensive and it all it doesn't clean at all and we know that low level um ingestion especially uh, to all these kinds of radiation and gamma will actually cause you know childhood cancers leukemia thyroid cancers, and a variety of of other things so that's the new the new twist is the desal plant you know at the uh, three and a half miles down river from the
0: river so in other words, the they water can water water take out the salt plant. but they can't take out they can't guarantee that they can take out the radioactive isotopes
1: right and looking at their um d e i s it basically says. Five out of 11 samples don't have strontium in it. (laughs) That's how they list it, literally.
0: Oh, the semantics around this. So what is the status of the reactor now? Is it online? Is it offline? Where are you with this?
1: Right Right now, both reactors are online. Indian Point 1 was decommissioned – well, it wasn't decommissioned. It was closed many years ago, and they finally actually removed the spent fuel from the the pools that were probably the biggest problem, leaching into the ground, into the bedrock and into the Hudson River, and they put them in dry casts. But the two plants are operating. We have about 18 to 20,000 tons of radioactive waste on the Hudson River. Uh, you know, sitting here in, in pools of water that are that are known to be leaking. Um, you know, and I, this is a question I don't know regarding other plants, but I do know at Indian Point the amount of exemptions and variations and deviations from the design basis are enormous. The more I got involved with, you know, looking at the way the plant is operated and looking at what the relicensing standards are, they basically exempt them from a, a numerous amount of safety um standards and inspections and one of them happens to be they know the spent fuel pool is leaking. They when you say they
0: you mean you're talking NRC. about the NRC, you're talking about who?
1: NRC and Energy. It's okay. known by and it's acknowledged by everyone. It's leaking. They but and they also have exempted them from inspecting forty percent of it because it's too hard to inspect. It's too expensive. But they've never found where the leak is. And they've exempted the inspection. So it's still leaking. They don't know where the leak is. That's basically the 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 standard that they're using so what are some other things like that
0: (laughs) so what are some of the other strategies that you're using you have this one one lawsuit and you're backing up the the local government and uh hopefully that's going to work what other strategies have you found that are effective that might be useful to other activists in other parts of the country
1: well, um as I, I think people know that um Attorney General General Schneiderman just won this major case regarding um the long-term storage of nuclear waste on site. Um the case it was I think um uh the 9th the of this month it was ruled by the District Court in DC that the waste confidence rule which they basically what they said they don't have a waste confidence rule because there's no long term you know storage facility anywhere in the country that's ever going to work so they decided well we're just going to change the rules and instead of after decommissioning we're going to be allowing all the plants in the nation to keep their waste on site for another 60 years without doing any kind of environmental impact evaluation or analysis of any sort and the dc court the district court said that's not allowable they have to do a full environmental impact statement and that they can't rely on that so now this impacts relicensing because it means that all the plants in the country and from my understanding is after this ruling came down the majority of plants in the country that were up for relicensing, or actually had already been relicensed, has now petitioned the NRC, saying, based on this, you can't re-license the, relicense the plant, and if you already relicense it, you have to reopen the case because you have no place to put the waste. And that's a big that's a big win. So that was part of the, that was actually raised as part of our relicensing uh, battle, in New York regarding Indian Point. There were 50 contentions that were filed against re um, relicensing. it's more than anywhere else it's historic and um, in the end they threw out most of them at this point they've narrowed whittled it down to about there's really about 12 but they call it 10 and what they threw out the issue of long-term storage but now it's now we believe it's going to be reinstated or it should be reinstated as one of the Um but we you know, basically yes, we have to fight the battle and everyone who's up for relicensing has to fight the battle. But we all know that the NRC is going to approve no matter what. No matter what you prove, no matter what you show, they're gonna approve the relicensing of these plants. So where
0: do you see the most effective battleground as being to get these shut down?
1: I think that both this the waste storage issue is enormous. I think that the um discharge permit The water use permit of the states is enormous, and it's something the states control. Now, each state might control something different, but we have to go back to how these plants were cited. Every state gave them permission to come to be in their state. Right, And so you have to go back and look what were the regulations in each state that allowed them to be in the state. In New York it was New York State controls the water, the discharge permit. Other states might have something different. Now, the other issue that all the states should be looking at, I think, and Minnesota has been in the forefront of this, is that now they're storing the waste on site, right, in these dry casks or in whatever they decide. Or the spent
0: fuel pools, whatever.
1: Whatever. But the dry casks, the spent fuel pools was a planned design when they came and they built these plants the dry cast storage which we're all for we don't think they're doing it correctly they're not burning them they're just letting them sit basically on the hudson river not bolted down it's a total attractive terrorist site i mean you're just making it like as appealing as possible for anyone you know to either come along and take it or blow it up you know it's ridiculous but we're asking for them to be burned but in any event it's a new use of the land So, like, if you were going to build a swimming pool at your house, you get reassessed, right, because now you've increased the use of your property, and so then your taxes go up. Well, in Minnesota, they're doing that. They're taking that. They they said, you now want to use dry cask storage on your site? Fine, but we're going to charge you $18 million a year per cask, and that money is going to go into our renewable energy portfolio program, and we're going to start putting renewable energy on our buildings, on our municipal buildings and our schools, et cetera.
0: And did and that, that come? Did that come from the governor? Did that come from the legislature? From the people? How did how did that get in place? I,
1: I don't know how it got in place, but it's been in place for about ten years now in Minnesota. So it's it's um, I believe it was from the legislature. I'm not sure, but we've been trying to get something like that passed here. We haven't had any luck yet. We can't get it out of committee, it, you know, at, on a, the state level. But I really do think that's one one lever to to try to use because it, one of the problems you know, that they always battle us about is, yeah, but what's going to happen with the energy? You know, we we have, you know, if you take down Indian Point, there will be no energy, which is the biggest battle we have because it's a public relations battle because it's actually not true. Indian Point, they advertise at the Yankees games as supplies 25% of New York City's energy. The reality is it can't legally for a variety of reasons, but second of all, it doesn't. It only supplies about 8% to the New York metropolitan area, and the rest they sell out on the open market on the grid for the highest bidder. And so they're actually just raising our energy costs due to that. It has nothing to do with um, – in fact, energy – Indian Point has the ability to produce 2,000 megawatts. At this point in time, they only send sell 550 to New York City, and next year it's going down to 350. So we know it's not true, but, of course, they have all the money – to advertise whatever they want to say.
0: Oh, it's 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 millions in terms of PR positioning, the naming, the the, the strategy, the languaging that's going out, which is why I fight the languaging so often um, uh, in discussing this issue. So you. Oh, ha- go oh, ahead. I'm
1: sorry. You asked what another lever is that we are looking at, and I think all the plants. You know, I don't know if all the other. Um, nuclear plants advertise as heavily as energy, but we're looking at a false advertising claim because I think that that's something we all can look at into. And th- that's a state level. It's not federal. You don't have to sue the NRC. You're actually suing its corporate. It's going against the corporation that's local. And so that may be something interesting people should look at in their own states. So,
0: Susan, um, as you're moving forward, what do you see as, as our pathway in the future? Are, do we really have a hope of closing these plants down and moving forward?
1: Well, you know, I wouldn't be fighting this if I didn't think we had a hope. I do think we have a hope. I think that we, the the, um, the reality of solar and wind has actually outstripped nuclear in terms of production worldwide. This country is way behind the eight ball. I mean, we have to remember that, the, they, they look at the waste as an asset, all right. So it, the the issue is it's really a military asset, and how do we change that conversation? Because you know what, we have a hell of a lot more asset than anyone else ever could want, and the issue is the storage. I think in the end, the end game is that the storage is going to be the the final situation, or God forbid, there's going to be some horrible situation. You know, you have health impacts. You have financial impacts. You have, you know, there's so many other things. The other thing I think na- nationally we really need to focus on, and I think we can get traction on this, is um, the Price-Anderson Act. Because I think we did, I, it would be great if every community could do this. We did it around Indian Point. We did a property value study about how much the actual property value, not life, not businesses, not any of that, but just straight property value is worth in the 50-mile radius. It turns out it's eight point five trillion dollars in the fifty mile radius, but Price Anderson will only cover twelve billion dollars so who who's the insured it's the public, and that dialogue has to happen, and that conversation has to be understood, and sadly, people are more concerned about their money than their health often you know on this so issue
0: i've often said that i will if people are not coming from you know their hearts and their understanding of the consequences of the issues, I will take unenlightened self interest if that's going to motivate people towards moving forward on the issue. So if they value their property and they suddenly realize their property is risk, plus the problem that there's no insurance available to them uh, for any kind of nuclear loss, that just might get some people who otherwise might not be working on this issue. It might motivate them.
1: Well, that's what I think, and I think if we can do it nationally, I think we're going to be well higher than the uh, national debt, which is everyone's big concern. And, and the dialogue is that we, the public, are the insurers, and therefore the NRC needs to answer to us, not to the NEI or the nuclear industry, which they do now. And one of the issues is the lack of safety enforcement and fire protection codes. I mean, at Indian Point, we now have an issue where a 24-minute fire could cause a meltdown at Indian Point because they exempted the standard so many times that it's a three-hour standard is now down to 24 minutes
0: in other words they had to protect 500%. against a three-hour fire and now they only have to protect against a 24 I, I don't understand the issue
1: yeah okay the issue is that it, it, after um, Brown's ferry the the um, Congress made the NRC you know create these fire protection regulations and there was there are three cornerstones to it and one, it starts as a three-hour fire rating, right? And if you can't do the three-hour fire rating, then you have to have, or you're supposed to have all three, actually. You're supposed to have a three-hour fire rating, 20 feet between um, redundant pathways to shut down the reactor, you know, electrical pathways, and um, fire wrap that works for an hour. Well, they've already, in this particular spot in Indian Point, the three-hour rating doesn't exist. The, the cables are only nine inches apart. And the fire rating, which the fire wrap that they used, called C was supposed to be good for an hour. When they finally tested it, after many years of it being in use, they found it only works for 24 minutes. So instead of telling them retrofit it and fix it, which most of the plants in the nation did, Entergy asked the NRC for an exemption from that rule to fix it, which would have cost maybe, today it still would only cost about $500,000 for them to fix it. They've spent well over that in legal fees fighting us on this.
0: they probably uh, spent more than that on the publicity to try and turn things in their direction.
1: Oh, well more than that. But but the bottom line is right now between us and a meltdown is a 24-minute fire and a cable that's, that we would never know. You, it, you, there's a walkdown. There's not even uh, an automatic sh- uh, emergency um, fire protection there. So it's very ridiculous. I mean, it's it's actually insane that you put 18 million people's lives at risk for $500,000. You know, when the BP oil spill happened and they were talking about it could have been prevented for $500,000, that's exactly what's happening right now at Indian Point. And I don't doubt it's happening at other plants as well. But, um, you know, we found out that there's over – there's thousands of exemptions granted, and there's no listing of them. It's impossible for you to find them exactly what they are because they call them different things they grant them in different ways and there's no like you would expect you'd open a file and see them all there's no such thing
0: and there's no we way don't. to correlate or do a search for it online or or in other ways compile the information
1: well we've tried on Adams and we've come up with you know well over 500 when we ask them they show us 100 we know that there's more than 500 what's the way that we can make the biggest change is the reality is it's congress and it's it's The house of representatives and the senate but the nuclear industry and the um, atomic energy act and the nrc are under congress under the uh, under the oversight of congress congress has acted hands off for many many years and congress can hold all the hearings they want if you go to a court of a law based on the hearings it's not an act of congress and so for anything to be changed in this on a national level is we need congress so That's really the lever. The real true lever is Congress.
0: Considering this is an election year and there are going to be open forums, this would be an opportunity for activists to go to any place where candidates are speaking and bring up the issue.
1: Right, and this is what you need to ask them, not just are you against it, because some people are going to say, yeah, yeah, I'm against it, and then they get there and they do nothing. The question is, as you, as either a freshman congressperson or a a veteran congressperson, are you willing to introduce legislation to require that there be no more exemptions or to require that the Price-Anderson Act be uh, revoked? You know, ask them very specific questions. Are you willing to introduce legislation? Because if they're not, then, you know, they're just giving you lip service, and there's a lot of that. To get the, because we are actually a large block of people who are a single issue voter and we just need to let them know that this is our issue and that that we're not willing any longer to take the back seat to other issues.
0: Susan, this is a staggering amount of information, and it's clear that you have so much more. I'm wondering, uh, is there any kind of national aggregate of uh, attorneys who are working on these issues where you get together and do conference calls or somehow work with each other and strategize with each other on what can be done?
1: No, but, boy, that would be a brilliant idea, and I really think that that is the one thing they did. They succeeded in the 80s to break us into separate reactor communities, and we're all supposed to be fighting our own battles, but we have so many interlacing issues and that it, we really need to really nationalize this again. That's the way – because they really broke us apart after the 80s, after all the success of stopping more plants being built. It, it's, we've bought into their agenda in a certain way in that we're separate reactor communities
0: so we really need to fight this together so susan if we were to support you in your work perhaps with an eye towards um getting the attorneys to talk with each other and with you what would be the best way for us to do this
1: i think it would be great if we could identify different attorneys at different plants for fight you know everyone's got slightly different battles like i said vermont has a different battle than we do and oyster creek is slightly different but they're all similar you know and one of the big underlying things for the relicensing issue that isn't being really discussed is we call it relicensing, and we think of it like, you know, you get a driver's license and you get your license renewed, right? Mm-hmm. That's not what this is. It's actually a new license. They actually should be going through all the standards of getting a new license, but they don't. And so I do think that if we can get all the, you know, I don't know if we'd get all the attorneys, but if we can get a few from different reactors with you know to really focus in on a variety of issues and then maybe simultaneously take actions in our own states regarding the same thing. That might be very effective. I think that could be a very effective way to do it. And I guess, you know, obviously, you know, conference call, Skype, that that would probably be the most effective way to
0: So if people happen. want to follow up with you and, and would want to get in contact with you, what would be the best way to do so?
1: Actually, we're not set up for what you just suggested. I'm not set up for it. It would be great to do that, though. I think we'd need somebody to help coordinate that.
0: Well, here's what I suggest is that at minimum just get a Gmail account for now so that at least there's an email. and when you have that in place, let me know. I will put that out through Nuclear Hot Seat and make certain that all the groups that I am networked with know about it so at least we can start spreading the word, looking for the people, and the appropriate people can find you, and you will have a way of vetting them without having your phone line clogged up.
1: I would really encourage different communities to go to radiation.org, which is the Radiation and Public Health Project, um, and they've been doing some really, really great peer-reviewed studies regarding um, health effects. You know, and one thing that we looked into, we asked them to look into for us was thyroid cancer at Indian Point because thyroid cancer, as we know, is the marker. Um, And I think it would be really powerful if all the reactor communities did a similar kind of study based on the CDRC and the cancer registries, which can be done. It's a matter of getting him the documentation. So it's a matter of foying it from your state and then you know getting it to Joe and he could actually analyze what the rates are. But we found like within five miles of Indian Point, thyroid cancer rates are anywhere from 56 to 106 percent higher than the rest of the nation. And I think if we start being able to show that that's true around every nuclear plant, we are going to start having people pay attention. You know, one nuclear plant, oh, maybe it's just Indian Point, maybe it's just here. But if we can, you know, I think that's the thing that we need to do is show that a lot of this stuff is the same everywhere. I agree that we need to organize the nation.
0: Well, I'm going to do my part, and it sounds like you are doing a tremendous job. Thank you for having been the guest today on Nuclear Hot Seat. Thank you. Now for the week's holistic healing tip. Last week, as I reported here, Arnie Gunderson warned us that by using zeolite to take radiation out of our bodies, we were also risking the taking out of our bodies of necessary nutrients and that we needed to be cautious with its use. But he didn't provide any guidelines. So as promised, I did some research, leaning on my primary source for nutritional information on this topic, Kim Roberson of the Fukushima Fallout Awareness Network and a nuclear hot seat regular. According to Kim... Whatever zeolite takes out of your body is easily replaced if you take a daily multivitamin and multimineral. So add zeolite to your food or put it in your morning smoothie or put it in your eggs if you can stand the grit of it. But if you have it in your smoothie, use that to wash down your supplements and voila, you've taken action to protect your health from the ongoing increasing risk of radiation exposure and you probably have something good to eat as well. Remember, when it comes to radiation... Contrary to nuclear industry propaganda, every little bit you're exposed to counts, is cumulative, and has dangerous consequences for your health. For our activist opportunity this week, a reminder that the UI restart protests will continue in Japan every Friday. Here in the States, let's do what we can to support them. In Los Angeles, we will be protesting at the Japanese consulate at least once a month in solidarity with Japan. I understand the same is being investigated and intended for San Francisco. So when this information becomes available, I will post it on Nuclear Hot Seat, on Facebook, and also on the website. In other parts of the country, what can you do? Whatever you come up with, let us know and we'll pass it along. Because it's in all our interest to be as involved, as visible, and as powerfully loud about this as we can. Here's our final thought. They are... Two quotes that go to a core premise of this podcast when it has to do with radiation. From Norman Cousins, nothing is more arrogant than pronouncements by government officials about permissible levels of radioactive poisons in the human body. The proper amount of strontium 90 in the human body is no strontium 90. And this from Albert Schweitzer. We are constantly being told about permissible levels of radiation. Who permitted it? Who has any right to permit it? Thank you, Albert Schweitzer. This has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, June 26, 2012. You can find us posted on nuclearhotseat.com forward slash blog, on the Facebook sites Nuclear Hot Seat and Nuclear Hot Seat Group, and on iTunes podcast. Feel free to share the link and forward the download. We want this going as far as we possibly can. And if you have thoughts on how to improve Nuclear Hot Seat, please, I'm open to this. Send an email to info at nuclearhotseat.com. This is Lee B. Halevi of Heart of Street Communications, the heart of the art of communicating, reminding you that we have all had our nuclear wake-up call. Now, whatever you do, do not go back to sleep. Be safe, be well, and I'll speak with you again next week. Sakai do Hansei!